Okay, let's continue the second part. In the distal convoluted tubule or DCT, what will happen will be mostly secretion. It will also be a reabsorption, but mostly secretion. And different types of cells are described here, and these cells are involved in reabsorption. As you see here, principal cells of the DCT, they contain sodium potassium pumps, reabsorb sodium. There are more aquaporins here that reabsorb water. These are the ones stimulated by ADH. And intercalated cells are called the ones that reabsorb potassium, the carbonate ions, and secrete hydrogens. This helps to regulate the pH of the blood. Very important function of the kidney is regulation of the pH, the amount of hydrogens that we have in, the, in our blood. And the secretion will happen mostly at the DCT, distal convoluted tubule. Now this function of the kidneys regarding secretion of potassium, reabsorption of sodium uh, and hydrogens are related to the different conditions of dehydration, high blood pressure, low blood pressure. And here is a description of this system, which is part of the hormonal regulation also, but with more, uh, more uh, components of it. Not only angiotensin II, in the previous part, we mentioned angiotensin II as one of the hormonal regulation of the kidney, but angiotensin II is only one part of the big picture that we have here. This belongs to the system known as the RAA, or renin-angiotensin-aldosterone pathway. The aldosterone helps to regulate blood volume, blood pressure, and levels of sodium, potassium, and hydrogen. Aldosterone, as you remember, is produced secreted by the adrenal cortex. Adrenal cortex, the zona glomerulosa, the outermost layer of the adrenal cortex. Following the sequence of numbers here, the situation that's usually the trigger is dehydration. Loss of pressure, maybe in hemorrhage. So that produces a decrease in the blood volume and therefore decrease in blood pressure. That is detected by the juxtaglomerular cells, juxtaglomerular apparatus. And these cells will produce the first component, renin. Now the renin, renin will work as an activator. It will work doing the following. It will turn the angiotensinogen which is a protein produced by the liver, the angiotensinogen will turn into angiotensin 1. This angiotensin 1, under the effect of the raining, this angiotensin 1 will go through the lungs and under the effect of the ACE will turn into angiotensin 2. Here's where the angiotensin 2 
uh, that we described before. It is a very strong vasoconstrictor. It will produce vasoconstriction of the arterioles in the kidney. And producing vasoconstriction will make the blood pressure increase. So vasoconstrictor of arterioles in general, in general, all blood vessels, but also in the kidneys. Well, there are more numbers here because the angiotensin II will promote the adrenal cortex to produce aldosterone, which will work increasing the sodium and water reabsorption and secretion of potassium and hydrogen. And that will help to increase the blood volume and therefore help to increase the blood pressure and reaching the homeostasis. Remember, we started with low blood pressure decrease blood volume, decrease blood pressure, and here all the mechanisms go to increase the blood pressure and balance this, uh, this problem. That's a whole picture of the renin angiotensin aldosterone. Angiotensin II is a vasoconstrictor, it works in the kidney, but it also promotes production of aldosterone, will favor the reabsorption of sodium, water, potassium, and hydrogen. Now the absorption of water that we call facultative or reabsorption, that 10%, is part of the negative feedback loop. That I think we review this more than once. This loop that starts with um, increasing the osmolality of the plasma and interstitial fluid, which may, may happen because of dehydration again, loss of water and the relative amount of solute is increased, increased osmolality. That is detected by hypothalamus, which have special receptors to detect that change. Well, that will be the input, so the hypothalamus will produce ADH, and the ADH will work on the kidneys and make it more permeable to water, so will reabsorb water. The response will be decrease, decrease plasma osmolality, which was increased at the beginning. And in that way, we balance this off. Now the urine, volume of urine is usually one liter, two liters per day, it depends. It depends on the intake of water, it depends on the consumption of water by our tissues, and it depends on the production of water from chemical reactions. ADH determines how much water we reabsorb or we lose, besides the obligatory reabsorption that we have with the solutes. If there is no ADH or decreased levels, the urine becomes very diluted. And we can see when, we can see the urine very clear, almost like water. It's very diluted, there's no, almost no solutes in there. And high levels of ADH stimulates reabsorption of water, and therefore there will be a concentrated urine. One of the things that we use to measure this is the, 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 it's called specific gravity. which we can measure with the urinalysis with a reagent strip. 
Higher the number means the urine is more concentrated. Lower the number, the urine is less concentrated, more diluted. And it depends on the amount of water, usually the amount of water that we drink. If you drink a lot of water, then you can expect that increasing water in your body will decrease your osmolality. And therefore, the mechanisms have to work to eliminate that excess of water, so your osmolality will increase back to normal levels. Or the other way around. If you are in a very hot day in the summer, you urinate less than in the winter because you need to keep water with it. You're losing water by sweating, evaporation. You need to keep the water there. Now, how we produce or form diluted urine and concentrated urine? This number is the osmolality of the blood, but also of the glomerular filtrate. But here is when the thing changes, because in the medulla of the kidney, the osmolality will be much higher. It will create a concentration gradient, actually. When diluted urine is formed, the osmolality inside the tubule, especially in the loop of Henle, on the nephron loop, it will increase the osmolality in the descending limb. And the osmolality will decrease in the ascending limb. And it will decrease more in the collecting duct. So we are producing, we're forming a urine that is diluted. that has more water, less solutes. Here we have a picture showing that. And notice the numbers. This 750, 550, and 350 are in the blue zone. This is the line that divides cortex and medulla. And the deeper I go in the medulla, the concentration is higher. And the numbers inside the tubule in the nephron loop, 300 is the osmolality of the filtrate as soon as it filtrates in the glomerular capsule. And then it starts moving PCT, proximal tubule, and it gets into the medulla, which is a hyperosmotic environment. And then it equalizes. The osmolality is equal. 550 inside, 550 outside. By osmosis. By osmosis. And when the nephron loop makes a turn, the osmolality of the filtrate it's 900, it's very concentrated. But then it continues its way and goes in the ascending loop and is facing now decreased osmolality and therefore starts equalizing back. 550, 350, and here is where the difference is because there, there's no exact uh, balance here. But it's still, inside the tubule is 150 now. It's not 300 like at the beginning, now it's 150. And it continues, and the discircumvulator tube is 100. And in the collecting duct here is where the ADH will work. And you see how the osmolality goes 90, 80, 70, and even 65. 65 is a diluted urine, starting with 300. That's how the urine can be diluted, if necessary, according to the circumstance. So in the ascending limb, what happens is how this gets equalized, how the osmolality gets equalized, 
the ascending limb let the solutes go through. The solutes leave the tubule. In the descending limb, the water comes out. But in the ascending limb, the water will stay. And instead, the solutes will leave. And that's why it's not equal. In one side, water is lost. and the other side, solutes are lost. And that's how this is managed. So we can change from diluted to concentrated, perhaps. And the collecting duct is one of the places where the ADH works. And if concentrated urine has to be formed, this is achieved by the juxtamedullary nephrons, which have long loops. They get very deep in the medulla. There is this mechanism called countercurrent multiplication which is a process that maintains the osmolality higher in the medulla. Increasing osmotic gradient is formed as a result of this countercurrent flow. Flow of what? Flow of water, sodium. As we said before, the solutes are removed from the ascending limb and the water stays. But in the other ascending, I mean descending, the water will flow and the solutes will stay. And in that way, the medulla increases homolality in the deepest parts. It's another graph to show this mechanism. Again, let's start with the filtrate in 300 here in the cortex still. And when it's entering to the medulla, what's going to happen? In the nephron loop, you see this water coming out because it gets more concentrated, it gets hyperosmotic, 380, 580, 780, and in order to equalize, water will have to come out. And the water leaves the descending limb of the nephron loop. But then, when it gets to the lowest part, 1200, and it starts going up 800, 600, 400, here on this side, we don't see movement of water. Instead, we see movement of solutes, sodium and chloride will leave the nephron loop. So remember, when we study osmosis, it depends on what you are changing. You can change the water contents or you can change the solute contents. Whichever you do, you will change the osmolality. And that's in the first descending limb, water come out. In the ascending limb, the solutes will come out. And the osmolality will return to 300, or usually what happens is that it returns to the cortex with less osmolality, as we see here, 200. And if ADH is present, the water keeps leaving here. It's being reabsorbed. And now we have 300. If there is ADH, even more water will be reabsorbed. Now we have 400, 600, 800 and even a very concentrated urine here, 1,200. So the nephron loop helps for this mechanism, plus the ADH in the distal and collecting tubules. Why this blood vessel is here? Because what happens to this water that is coming out? What happens to these solutes that are come out, coming out here? Well, this blood vessel is actually around the tubule. These are called peritubular capillaries. 
We just put in separated but for the effect of the picture. But this loop of blood vessel is actually surrounding all the tubule. So all those solutes are coming into the blood vessel, as we see here. And if they come into the blood vessel, water will leave. And you see that the plasma here in this loop of the peritubular capillary, it also changes. It gets up to 1,200. And the movement between the blood vessel, the tubule, and in this interstitial space will maintain that osmolality of the medulla. That's what we call countercurrent mechanism. Because there is a current of sodium, chloride, and water moving back and forth, the tubule, interstitial space, and blood vessel. So the osmotic gradient will increase as deep as we go in the medulla. The deeper we go, it's higher. How we form concentrated urine? Besides the nephron loop having all these mechanisms, when the filtrate reaches the collecting tubule, collecting ducts, that's where the ADH mostly work. And it will become more permeable to water, will reabsorb more water, and the urine gets more concentrated. Urea is a molecule that helps to the osmolality. It gets concentrated in the interstitial space, in the medulla. And that promotes the increased osmolality. But the urea, it's moving all the time. It's recycled, and it's secreted, and it's partially reabsorbed, and moving back and forth to help to create this concentration gradient. This is the same graph. Countercurrent change refers to that movement of solutes and water from the blood vessels and interstitial fluid as a result of this flow of sodium, water, and chloride. At the same time, remember those blood vessels provide blood supply to the loop, to the duct cells, and uh, this mechanism will maintain the high osmolality of the medulla. And summarizing the renal function here, filtration, reabsorption, secretion, with more details here, with the proximal convoluted tubule, or we're starting with the renal corpus call, that's where the filtration occurs. Then we have the proximal convoluted tubule where the reabsorption occurs more than secretion. Loop of Hanley, reabsorption and secretion, but this is the segment that helps in the changes of osmolality of the urine, meaning more concentrated or more diluted urine. And finally, the distal tubule, more secretion than reabsorption, and the collecting duct, that's where the ADH will mostly work to finally regulate the amount of water that we keep or eliminate. Now how we measure or assess the kidney function, there are different tests. The first and one of the most uh, important initial screening is urinalysis. The urinalysis includes three things. The physical examination of the urine, 
chemical analysis of the urine and microscopic analysis of the urine. Physical is just observation, see the color of the urine. The urine changes in color because of medications that we take, food that we eat, and uh, physical characteristics like if it's turbid, cloudy, may mean infection. The second is a chemical analysis, and that's what we're doing today in the lab, using a reagent strip to detect the presence of some of these compounds in the urine. And third is microscopic analysis, where we take a sample of urine, centrifuge this urine, and get a sample on the slide and look under the microscope for the presence of red blood cells, white blood cells, bacteria, crystals, and other uh, germs. Here we have some description of the components of the normal urine. Volume, one to two liters. The color, so very sweet generis, yellow, amber. It may change depending on whether the urine is concentrated or not. Some things to um, see here. Sometimes the, the, the diet may affect the color of the urine. More than once, uh, People get surprised when they eat some type of food like uh, beets and they uh, complain that the, urinary, uh, the urine is kind of pink and they think there's blood. Well, we have to see what type of diet they are taking. And sometimes that happens, sometimes it's not so evident. Uh, but blood may be present in the urine and that's because of usual infections or kidney stones. Color, turbidity, and other are the physical characteristics. The other is also sui generis. The urine of diabetic people has a special odor, a special smell. It smells like a mixture of honey and uh, fruits. That's described here as a fruity odor due to the presence of ketone bodies. It's a very characteristic smell. It's not the typical urine. It smells kind of sweet, actually. People that do urinalysis every day, they notice, they notice about these changes and they can describe that uh, other. pH goes from 4.6 to 8. It depends on the type of diet that we have, the drinks, the fluids that we drink. Specific gravity is the degree of concentration of the urine is lower the number, uh, less concentrated the urine is, higher the number, more concentrated the urine is. This is what we're doing in the lab, the urinalysis with the reagent strip. Uh, we measure different components. This is a summary of what we can find in the urine. Proteins, especially albumin. albumin. If albumin is present in the urine, that is completely abnormal. It should not be present. If we find albumin in the urine, that means some degree of kidney damage. Albumin in the urine means kidney damage. And there are many diseases that can damage the kidney, even hypertension, diabetes, and some infections. Glucose, you know, that first thing to think, it's diabetes. Red blood cells, 
if present in the urine, that's called hematuria. And first, to think if we find blood in the urine is infection, and then kidney disease, kidney stones, see, irritation from kidney stones, ketone bodies, which may be present in diabetes. Bilirubin is a pigment. Bilirubin may be present when there is hemolysis, which is destruction of red blood cells because the bilirubin derives from hemoglobin. If red blood cells are being destroyed, hemoglobin is released and more bilirubin may be present in the urine. Urobilinogen is a pigment. It's a pigment that is excreted in the urine and gives the color to the urine. If there is some liver disease, hepatitis for instance, jaundice, we may see increased urobilinogen, which, which can be seen just, see the urine looks very dark. But with the urinalysis you can detect how much uh, urobilinogen is in, present in the urine. Casts and microbes are signs that we can see under the microscope, uh, the microscopic analysis, and they mean usually kidney problem. The casts are groups of cells that are usually formed in the tubules, and they come down and are present in the urine like cylinders, and that means usually tubular damage, so some problem in the tubules, maybe infection. In addition to this urinalysis, there are two blood tests, the blood urea nitrogen and the serum creatinine. The blood urea nitrogen, also known as BUN, measures how many uh, molecules of nitrogen wastes are in the blood. And that usually correlates with the presence of amino acids. Like if we consume a lot of proteins, a lot of meat, well, will we eliminate a lot of urea? Because proteins are amino acids, we use the amino acids, some of them, they are not used, and they are turned into urea, and we eliminate that in the urine. But we can measure that in the blood, and that may be a sign of kidney disease when the kidney is not handling that urea properly. And there's a buildup of urea in the blood. Creatinine is another one. Creatinine is a molecule that is formed in the skeletal muscle. But the thing is that all the creatinine that we find in the urine is the creatinine that is filtered because it's not reabsorbed. So it's a, it's a good measurement of the capacity of filtration of the kidney. If this creatinine is high in the blood, that means it's not being filtered. Kidney is not working properly. So this is how we can assess the kidney function with blood test BUN and serum creatinine. And I think this is the last one. Questions, comments? See you in the lab, 5.30.